Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I want to give you all a very warm welcome on the podcast, Focus on Solution. Solutions. The subject for today is difficult people um, with a question mark at the end. Difficult people stands for the better known diagnose, borderline personality disorder. The person who I talk about this subject is Geert Lefebvre. Geert is a teacher and staff member at Korzybski in Bruges. Um, before we start with the subject of today, I would like to know you a bit better in person, Geert, if that's okay for you. That's fine with me, Philip. Thank you for asking me. Okay. Um, what did you study, Geert? I'm a psychologist, a clinical psychologist uh, and a psychotherapist. I went to Leuven uh, to fulfill my classification as a psychologist and have been working as a psychologist and a psychotherapist for over 35 years now. Okay, that's a long time. Um, I know um, in classes that you have a passion for volleyball and I'm curious, what is your link with volleyball exactly? Can you tell us a bit more about it? Ah, that's my secret life. But that was my secret life. Okay. I mean, um, I think from childhood on until I was, uh, I don't know, 30 or 32, I played at a high level of volleyball here in Belgium. And it was a very um, interesting and challenging combination of working full time and being the only non-professional player in my team at that moment. Um, so it was um, intense. We went abroad uh, every two weeks to play games. We uh, were for three weeks abroad to have training uh, courses and so on. So uh, it was a high intensity way of making my life at that point. But that's behind me now. I stopped it some years ago. And for which team did you play here? You're very curious. Yeah. I played my, my my high days uh, were at uh, Torot. At, to- at Torot, that's yeah, the big time, team in Belgium. At the time, it was one of the uh, wow, I can say three top teams in Belgium at the time. Yeah, if I'm correct, next to Mazek. Yeah, there was always Mazek and Russelare. Yes, still are the two top teams in Belgium. But at the time, Torot was a very fine third. Yeah. All right. Now I know. Thanks for that. Do you have other passions that you want to share here next to psychology? Oh, I always say I don't want to spend my free time uh, as a kind of recuperation of uh, working time. So I want to do things in my free time that I really enjoy, such as go hiking in the mountains, um, and of which I'm quite proud of myself. Last year I decided to um, restart to play the marimba. I I have, um, when I was a teenager, I went to uh, public music schools and I was a drummer. Um, and there was not only the drums, but also the xylophone and the vibraphone and the marimba at the time. And it stopped for 30 years or something like that. And together with my wife, we decided to do one silly thing every two years. 
and I, and I was and I was lucky one to start with. And I said, what if I took up the marimba again? So we went looking and now for, I don't know, two or three months, I am the proud owner of the new marimba. I'm taking lessons and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, fantastic. That's a fantastic story. Um, first of all, I'm curious how, how you came in contact with solution-focused therapy. Well, um, when I started my uh, active career, when I had finished my studies, um, I, uh, I, I got to work in Bruges, where I still work. Um, and I was looking around to see what kind of psychotherapy training I would um, engage in. Um, and at the time, there was um, mostly the systemic therapy that interested me. Um, so I looked around to see if there was a systemic training. Um, and uh, one of the doctors, uh, doctors I was working with said, well, I know this guy, his name is Lucky Zwart, and I think he's doing some kind of systemic training. So I went knocking to Luc. And I asked Luc, oh, what are you doing from training? I'm a new one. I want to do something new. I'm very interested in the systemic. So I tried to impress him with my uh, interest. Uh, and of course, Luc was very uh, open um, and very interested too. And he said, well, you can start with us. So I started at uh, what was called the Korzybski Institute, which was a very systemic institute. And I think it was in the first year um, that we got to know uh, the news about Steve DeShazer and into Kim Burke. And, uh, Luc was very impressed with the work they were doing and there were a lot of similarities with the work he was doing at the time. So during my training at the Korzybki Institute, in my time, um, I went through this change from a purely systemic training to a solution-focused training. And the systemic um, part of it has always remained very much a, a fundamental aspect of the Bruch model, which became the Bruch model in the last time. So that was my introduction to uh, the solution-focused therapy. So if I'm correct, it's about 30 years ago that you came in contact, around the 1990s, I thought yeah. that, yeah, that yeah, Lucas brought that 80s. context. End of the 80s, beginning of 90s. Yeah. Oh, Frederick, I'm, I'm sounding old, if you ask this question. <laughs> or experienced. Yeah. What, you actually maybe already gave an answer about the next questions, and that is what fascinates you about the solution-focused approach. You, talk, um, you just talked about the um, um, systemic approach. Um, are there other parts that really fascinates you? Um, yeah, there are lots of things. But first, I want to say maybe I, with the solution-focused approach, I really found an approach that connected very closely to the kind of ideas I had about what therapy should be like. Because I was never into uh, changing people. Um, I, I always had the idea, how can I know what to do for, of, to tell people what to do and to make their life better. So, um, so when I came in 
in contact with the solution focus therapy, what impressed me very much was this absolute and radical respect uh, for whoever is coming to talk to us. Uh, and respect in the way that um, from the very first words, from the very first uh, introduction, from the very first beginning, you talk to someone who's trying to make the best out of his or her life. And this interest, this fundamental respect has touched me ever since. Even up to now, every time I see someone new uh, in the consultation room, um, I try to have this beginner's mind of being interested and see how people are struggling to make the best out of their lives. And in trying to make the best out of their lives, get into trouble uh, as never before, but it's trying to get the best out of their lives. So this was a part which struck me from the beginning. Um, but I don't know if that's an, a, a fundamental part of, um, uh, of the solution-focused therapy, but um, from the beginning of my training with look, humor has always been a very important aspect of whatever I was doing. Yeah. Not that I think that I'm so funny, that's not, but <laughs> that, that's not the point. But to get this lightness into conversation, to see that whatever trouble people are coming up, whatever difficulties we, we encounter in our lives, there is always something else that balances it. And, and if you can bring this into the conversation, um, uh, this is, has always helped me in, in a very profound way. And maybe a third thing that, and I'm not, ex, it's not exhaustive, but um, is the idea of trying to do what you can do and stop trying to do what you can't do. To focus on what are my possibilities in this conversation with these people around me that we can work on. So let's talk about what we can do. If, someone, we will address it later, but if someone is suicidal, maybe there's nothing in my power to change that suicidal idea. But there is a lot of other things I can do that will surround this idea of uh, solution. Because instead of in a kind of anxious, trying to get rid of the suicidality, um, I try to focus on what can I do right here, right now with this person or with this system of persons surrounding me. So this was, and, and of course it's, this combines with um, the idea of if something works, do more of it. And if something doesn't work, do something else. And this has become, because the first time I, I heard about these ideas from Solution Focus, I just repeated them. I say, yes, Solution Focus therapy is about what works, works, what doesn't work, doesn't work. And I think I now began to uh, understand what I was telling all those years. Um, now I'm, this has the, um, I think I, I, I do know a lot more what I'm talking about yeah. than it was when I used the same words 20 or 10 years ago. Even. Yeah, first the theory, then the practice. Yes. A lot of, yeah, a lot of years afterwards. Uh, I'm actually curious if you can't do anything about a thought like um, suicidal um, thoughts. Um, you are going to try to do some different things. 
those different things are these you are you going to search for resources to for the person or to make him stronger or even that's um i don't know how to say it other words otherwise um how which stops do you which do you understand what i mean i think so yeah um well it it has to do with um my ideas and the ideas within the Bruges model about solution-focused thinking. Yeah. And one of the fundamental ideas is that um, whatever people are doing, they are doing the things they think they have to do. Yeah. So if someone um, has suicidal ideas, yeah. it is the result of, um, of activity within the person and within the context of the person which lead to this conclusion. Yeah. So to get, just to get rid of this, the suicide idea of suicidal ideas is to take away the result of a lot of effort. And I think that's not respectful. Yeah. So I will be interested in what made you, what made you come up to this point that this is the only solution you can see. Yeah. And at the same time, I will invite people to um, to think about other possibilities. And also this connects with the Bruch model where choices, introduction of choices, is um, for me the fundamental uh, idea within, uh, within the model. Yeah. The idea of within the knowledge of a people, and knowledge you can, it's a cognitive, but it's also an effective, it's a, a context way of, of knowing, but within that knowledge, at a certain point, we are not able to see any other solution than the solution we see. And this can be suicidal ideation, this can be self-harm to connect with uh, difficult people, um, this can be um, uh, quarreling within in a in relationships, this can be skipping school for youngsters, but within the knowledge they have, this is the only solution they can see. So I think one of the main reasons we can pretend to be able to help people is to create other kinds of information. And within this new information, we can invite people to look for new choices choices to make in their lives. Yeah. Okay. It's not up to us to make the choices, of course. And it's not, uh, and we can think, but this would lead us maybe too far for the moment. Um, but th the idea is how do you, how can we um, provide other kinds of information which can lead to new kinds of choices? Yeah. Now, yeah, now I understand. What are your specialties in the solution-focused therapy next to um, difficult people or the diagnosed borderline? Yeah. Well, of course, when you um, look at the world from a solution-focused perspective, yeah. um, it's not about the differences. It's about uh, a way of looking at reality. So it doesn't make that much difference to work with someone who is depressed or someone who is anxious or someone um, 
who has some kind of uh, autistic um, uh, way of standing in life. It's a way of connecting with people. And you can use it in whatever situation you want. But to make a concrete answer to your question, yeah. I've been working um, for all these years now uh, on a unit, a psychiatric unit, where we um, mostly work with um, mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Um, and I have been working uh, ever since also in a private practice well, where I meet all kinds of people. So there's not, um, there's no selection on symptomatology. So whatever symptoms people have, they are welcome. Um, and that is also say that I'm not sure if I can see myself as an expert in some kind of diagnosis. Yeah. I think I'm an expert in connecting in a yeah. certain people yeah okay i understand how does your work looks like in all aspects here um, i know you give lessons um, you just said um, you work in a private um ter as a private therapist you work in uh, zetsin tiam mm -hmm. um i think you did also um you're a sports psychologist i think i saw um are there other things I um, you can do because it's really <laughs> that's that's enough now. <laughs> uh, that, that, that are mainly the topics I'm concerned with. Yeah. Um, uh, as a hobby, I'm also involved in uh, the more international connections within the solution-focused uh, uh, community, meaning that I'm uh, in the board of the EBTA, the European Brain Therapy Association. So where we try to connect people from all over Europe and beyond. Yesterday I got an application to become a member from someone from India. So Europe is really expanding for the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which is very nice, of course, to hear and to see what people in other countries are uh, doing and uh, developing. Um, to meet up once a year normally, to have a conference to see the board members once or twice a year. So that's very nice. I'm also connected in the IASTI, the International Alliance of Solution-Focused Teaching Institute, where that's a worldwide organization of teaching institutes. Yeah. We try to, uh, to look for some kind of standards in teaching. Um, so what, what, what should a solution-focused teaching look like? Can we say something about basic, uh, commandments or basic uh, ideas about what this training should look, uh, should, uh, look like. And that's very, a very interesting bunch of people from all over the world. If we have our meetings online, of course, we have to see where in the daytime we can do that because for the one, it's still in pajamas, for the other one, uh, it's already in pajamas. <laughs> so it's, uh, but it's, uh, there is something about the solution-focused community, uh, which I, I lack in some other communities. And this is very nonsensical, warm way of trying to, uh, to be interested in each other. It's, uh, it's, you, you hardly, see, there's never someone who 
comes up and say, well, I found uh, the real solution to all of all of our problems. And I did that and that and that. It's always, an inter it's always from an interested point of view. What have you been doing? What have you been learning lately? And it's very, you know, it makes me a rich person to be uh, part of all those kinds of communities. Fantastic. And why should that be that, that there is such a warm community? Do you have any, any idea? Because people like you, you just said yourself are, don't see themselves as real experts from diagnosis and everything. Um, should that be the reason you think? Or I hope the reason is teach what you preach. This means if we are preaching a kind of uh, way of connecting with people, which is based on respect, on uh, being interested, on not selling solutions, uh, but be interested in what are people's already are doing, um, then I think this should be the way we are connecting with each other also. Yeah, experts in relations, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is one of the, the hard things for me as a trainer, when I try to train other people in this way of thinking, um, because all I really want to ask is, what do you think? How do you do it? And, and of course, this is not a, a good way of doing, of doing, but this is my, my basic mindset. Yeah. I have some ideas, but what are your ideas? I want to share my ideas, of course, it's, but I yeah. want to hear your ideas also. And I think this kind of, of connection you can really feel in the solution-focused community. That's, yeah, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. So the first question about a subject today, um, difficult people with a question mark behind. Um, so I actually have to say difficult people, that's more like it actually. Um, or what is better known, like I said before, the person, borderline personality disorder, if we speak in diagnosis. Um, so my first question actually is, um, a solution-focused therapist doesn't work with a diagnose, like I just said, but how does a solution-focused therapist deals with a diagnose in therapy when somebody enters the room and, I, and he says, Hello, I have borderline. Um, I see it all the time also with people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, they see themselves as a person who has borderline, like something they are. And it's really difficult to take it out of their head, out of their minds. Well, it's a very nice question, Frederick, because it's, yeah. uh, I think it's a challenge on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I have several ideas. Of course, these are my ideas. Um, so I would be interested in your ideas, of course. <laughs> um, one, uh, to talk about diagnosis is talking about um, a way of getting grip on your life. So this means if someone is entering the room and says, hello, I'm here and I have a borderline personality disorder, this is a way of defining reality. This is a way of defining you and your reality. Yeah. So in this way, it's, um, it helps to create some kind of balance. It helps me to think about me as being uh, someone who's suffering from a borderline 
personality disorder, someone who's suffering from a depression or someone who um, who's uh, autistic or whatever. And, uh, so it helps to maintain some kind of balance. So if this is the case, this is some kind of hypothesis, but if this is the case, then it would not be such a good idea to get rid of it. So basically my answer to diagnosis is if some kind of diagnosis is helping to create new possibilities, then it is useful. If some kind of diagnosis is just a limitation and in that way limiting possibilities, it's not useful. So how to deal with this? If someone says, I remember a girl entering the room and say, hello, I am her name and uh, I have been autistic since I was 12. And she was 18 and 18 at the moment. A very nice girl, very clever, uh, very fluently in her verbal expressions. Um, and I was a little bit blown away. Okay, <laughs> so this is what you are. Um, and at that point, I had a lucidity of asking, and how is this autistic you looks like? And she began to tell about how she experienced her being autistic. And we got into a lot of details. And it was not, she was talking about her detailed autistic um, characteristics. And it is this way there was an agency, she, the girl who was talking about other agencies, her kind of characteristics. And it was very helpful. We spent an hour talking about her, her diagnosis, but we talked about all the aspects of diagnosis, about how the, it influences her life, about all the other things that were not into the diagnosis. And it was very helpful. Yeah. Um, when I think of a couple I saw, um, and a man said, uh, yes, I know, um, uh, I, don't, I don't like feelings, I'm a rational man, and you have to take, take me for what it is. There, that's some kind of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. not, as, not in traditional way, but it's a, um, it's a label this man puts on himself, yeah? which is very limiting. Because it doesn't offer any ways uh, for new possibilities. Because he says, what you, what you see is what you get, deal with it. So there I would, I would try to, uh, I would ask some questions about it and say, okay, if you're, if you're I must say, I'm, I'm uh, when you say you, you don't like to talk about feelings, um, I will ask him what he really means by that. I will ask him if it has always been the case, um, if he felt anything when his children were born or whatever. I will try to, to make it more a dynamic idea rather than the static idea that um, he gives himself. And think, now I'm thinking about it, maybe that's um, the, 
the danger of diagnosis, that it becomes a static, unchangeable way of thinking about how things, how life, how I am. Yeah? And if it's static, it's static. You can't change it. That's why we call it static. So what I did with the girl was bringing that static uh, announcement. Uh, I am an autistic girl for more than six years into some dynamics. How are you autistic in your world and in your life? And how do you do it? And how can I see it? And how do other people deal with this? Yeah. And I think to turn in this static ways of thinking about how the world is and how I am in this world and bring it in a more dynamic way, that's, I think that's useful work. Yeah. To make it a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because process introduces possibilities of change. Um, the process introduces differentiation. And if you go back to what we said earlier, if therapy is about providing new information, which can lead to new options and new choices, then uh, creating a dynamic way of talking about reality will create more choices than uh, being stuck in a static way of looking at uh, the world and life. Yeah. Do you think um, giving psychoeducation is um, meaningful for those people? To give them also maybe some hope that when they grow older, um, the symptoms usually, um, I don't know the word in English, gratify or are lowering um, the intense feelings, the automutilation and everything. The, do you think it is useful to say those things or is it or do you speak too much like an expert then well there's something about psychoeducation uh, which to me is very important and uh, interesting to think about um, I well never say never and never say ever and solution-focused therapy because you never know it's a it's a client driven way of working so you never know what clients come up with you never know what people come up with so um, there's not one solution to several prob problems but if you look at psychoeducation um, and you ask people what is helpful then um, it's exactly what you mentioned, Frederick. It's the idea of creating hope. It's not the idea of gaining knowledge. The psychoeducation is not in the fact that if I tell you that, for instance, um, uh, I know from research that someone diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder uh, that this tends to diminish uh, later on in life. It's not the knowledge of me telling you that will help you, but the idea of a dynamic, uh, the, the idea of a possible change, the idea of creating hope that's included in this, in this communication, this is a useful uh, way of psycho uh, education. Yeah. 
at the same level, um, we could talk about um, what our brain is doing and how our brain is reacting to different ways of looking at the world, for instance, and how our brain is reacting to different ways of talking about the world. And this kind of psychoeducation, um, telling people that our brain is plastic, as we tend to say now, with the brain plasticity uh, hypothesis, um, but telling people that it's not that static as we always say it is. It's not that even our brain is what it is. Our brain is always becoming, becoming what it will be. And in becoming what it will be, we have a choice. How will we try to influence that becoming? Mm -hmm. And from brain research, we have some good ideas about that. So we know if we talk about, uh, for instance, a preferred future, which we use in solution focused therapy, this will stimulate some brain areas to create new pathways in the direction of. Yep. So we have, and this kind of psychoeducation, I think, is, uh, can be very useful. Yep. And the bottom line is the useful psychoeducation is the psychoeducation of which client says that it's useful. Okay. So we always have to get back to our clients and say, was it useful for you? Yeah. Is it okay, okay that I tell you something about how our brain works? Yeah. So um, this is a little bit... An <laughs> A complicated answer. answer. <laughs> yeah. A very easy question. What about psychoeducation? <laughs> but I think it's useful here, really. Um, why did you choose for the name Difficult People? Sometimes you have to be a little bit of a provocative people, someone. So I was thinking about uh, what I don't believe in. I don't believe in difficult people. So I told, well, why shouldn't I use this title? Difficult people with an interrogation mark as you. Yeah. As you yeah. And you did mention the subtitles. Because subtitles was difficult peop uh, people, difficult treatments, difficult relationships, all with a question mark. Yeah. yeah. And um, I use this as kind of provocation, of course, um, but it reflects also a way that is quite common in talking about these people who are from these kinds of problems, who have this very conflicted way of relating to the world and other people. And of course, difficult people is a label given by those who think they are not difficult. It's given by those who treat the difficult ones. Yeah. This, this is seldom an idea of people living these quite complex and difficult lives about themselves, because all they want to do is trying to get grip on their life and to, to find ways that are um, helping them to make to get most out of life for themselves. It's not being difficult. Yeah. Um, and in some research I've, I've been looking into, uh, there has been, not that much, but there has been some research on uh, how do, is, 
how these interactions are are going with that, with, between so-called difficult people and so-called people who want to treat difficult people. And what the difficult people uh, uh, are saying is that those who try to treat them uh, don't listen enough, um, have very static ideas about what is going on. Mm -hmm. um, so you hear some similarities and some parallels between uh, the ways uh, these people are described and the ways they are treated. Yeah, with the, di with the diagnosis, you mean? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So the difficultness um, will always be a difficultness in, of a difficulty in, um, in the relation. Um, I think that is a, a really fundamental idea of the Bruges model. Yeah, that's the kind, of, the kind of relationship you have will define what the possibilities are. Um, Steve Deshaies once said, um, uh, when he was asked about the therapeutic relationship, uh, he said, you, you shouldn't think about it. There's always a therapeutic relationship. You can only lose it. And he had a point. And I think within the Bruch model, we've been thinking about how can you lose it? And then the ideas of the flowchart came about that. People are coming with all kinds of questions and that not these different questions needs a different uh, approach, mm -hmm. which relates to um, the possibilities or the perceived possibilities of our clients at a certain point. Yeah. So this why that's why I use this term difficult people just to um, to use a bit of my bad character and personality <laughs> in, into the term. Um, we had it before already about this um, a borderline personality disorder tends to improve during life? Is therapy essential for improvement through life, according to you? Well, it's a bit the same as asking if um, a teenager who is tending to quit school, who is experimenting with all kinds of drugs, um, should you do something about it, knowing that most of the teenagers will growing, grow into uh, quite boring adults, following the rules, getting a job, finding uh, a house, uh, doing what expected to do. So, um, and I think if we should talk to people who are used to work with teenagers, they will say they absolutely need some coaching. They need someone to, to help them get through the, these quite difficult times in their lives. Yeah. And I think the same applies to people who have this difficult connection uh, with their worlds and with, with people surrounding them. Um, they will make the best out of it. Of course, that's what they will do. But I think they, they will be helped if they are not bound to do this uh, alone and on their own. Um, and in this, th that's why I think it's really, it's really helpful. 
And from a solution-focused point of view, we always say we try to lead from behind. So it's, uh, we will not take the steps, but we will be there to, um, to connect people to what they want, to remember people what they, or help to remember what they want and to see if the steps they are taking, these are really the steps they want to take in a very respectful way of connecting with them. Mm -hmm. So, I must say, I've seen quite a few, of course, during all the time, all um, people who have this very conflicted way of living and who are really um, fighting, almost fighting to to find some rest uh, in their lives and so on. And I must say, these were really very um, significant um, conversations we had. Um, and of course, you don't see those people afterwards, but if I, now and then you do, and most of them um, look back on it and say, oh, this has helped me in some way. Uh, and I stopped asking in what way it's at help, it helped, because it's always something else that I was thinking about. It's never what I think was helpful. It's always something else they put out, out of the conversations. So yes, I think it's useful to, to, um, to connect with these, these people um, because we know th these are people who are very lonely at, at a certain point who know they connect not that easy with other people. So to have this one person or the few, this few persons who they really can rely on, whatever happens, uh, where they always can come back, whatever happens, um, is, I think that's very useful. Yeah, to have a secure attachment yeah. later in life. Yeah. yeah. And the theory of Leinhen, if I speak him, um, his name correctly, um, that you describe in your course, give me a refreshing and empathic view on the borderline personality disorder. Can you describe the theory in a short way? That's not such an easy question. Mm -hmm. um, one, uh, DPT, uh, Dialectic Behavioral Therapy from Marsha Linhen, um, um, is, I should say, captured into the behavioral therapies. Um, if you look at the first writings of Marsha, um, I must say I was struck by the solution-focused ideas that were in the, the already there from the beginning. Um, and with this, I mean the, the very respectful way, the not try to change way, um, the idea of uh, people are trying to do their best, whatever it looks like. Uh, these were very fundamental ideas and starting points of dialectic behavior therapy. Afterwards, um, especially with um, the skills training, which is a very important part of, uh, uh, of the total program, 
it has become um, quite a model where the clients need some new teaching. They have to be taught how to handle certain things. And I think there's, there's, um, this is not quite a solution-focused way yeah. of thinking. Um, so I hope that um, during my trainings on, on these difficult people questions um, and the use of, of uh, DPT, um, I also succeed in trying to make it in a solution-focused way, where it's client-driven and not expert-driven. So, uh, of course, we will talk also about emotion regulation, but we will start with the client. How do you do that? What is working? How are other people helping? Yeah. And at a certain point, you can ask, are you interested in some other ideas about emotion regulation? And then you can start having conversation about what, could, what else could be useful. Yeah. But it's not... Um, um, you do it wrong and I will teach you how to do it right. And now, of course, I'm making a terrible mistake in making something dynamic, static also. But yes, we should, we should um, be cautious, cautious not to become thinking in this way. Especially because, of course, these people um, are quite challenging in the contact. Because mm -hmm. they are so insecure. Because they don't have any fundamentals to stand on and to tell that tells them this is okay and this is not okay so they always have to to test in reality is this okay is it not okay if they feel that something is caring about them almost instantly there's another voice in their heads that said oh, oh watch out don't believe it and there's always this ambivalence this duality this is there's this dual thinking about um, uh, what can I can I trust this or can't I trust this? Is this right or is this wrong? Um, should I be honest or should I not be honest? Um, so it is quite challenging. And what I see and what I see a lot in supervision also is when you're confronted with people who are challenging you in some way, then you could have the tendency to get in this expert position and say, okay, but this is your problem. Mm -hmm. And I will teach how to deal with this problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The solution focused way, I think we will say, okay, this is a, a way of trying to make the best out of it. And I see how it works with you. And I want to talk about other possibilities that yeah. would even also be helpful and maybe with less side effects than the way you are, you are doing it now. So there is quite some difference about in the way solution-focused therapy will do it and uh, dialectic behavioral therapy will do it. Yeah. Now, the basic ideas of Marshall Linehan is that um, if you think about uh, how is borderline personality comes about, um, it's, um, you have this um, emotional vulnerability to start with, with it, uh, which is a biological, environmental issue. Yeah. And she says this in combination with a 
a disabling environment, mm -hmm. yeah, which is quite tricky, of course. Yeah. Um, and this in, in combination with uh, problems situated, situated in the emotional area, uh, emotion regulation, um, um, lack of coping strategies, um, uh, well, this kind of thing. And it's a combination of these three things. She thinks that's her hypothesis that um, that would create a, burst, a bot like personality disorder. Now, research has shown that this is not as uh, rigid as it seems. So, uh, this means uh, we don't really know what this emotional vulnerability means. Um, on a biological level, we don't really can have a graph. Of course, we have ideas and we know how the brain works. So a little bit and we know what areas of the brain are involved in it but we don't really can see this is a person with a brain that involves emotional vulnerability and this is a brain of someone who is not uh, that emotional vulnerable um the second issue the disabling environment is of course um uh, it introduces some kind of guilt especially within the direct environment of, of patients. Um, and research there is, is not able to confirm that this is always the case. Yeah. And so I think we should be very, very careful in using this, because if you look at the environment as a disabling environment, um, yeah, I think it's, it's hard it, I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, and the third idea, the idea of emotion dysregulation. Um, of course, it, there's something true about it. It is people which we sometimes call that, that they are, they find difficulties in uh, attachment, in creating distance, coming closer to people and so on. But if you talk with these people, you talk about what's important in their lives, you talk with people who experience a lot of emotions that are quite, quite okay. And they can experience very normal emotional um, um, experiences with their children, even in the relationships, uh, at work, um, uh, while exercising and all these different terrains of, of life, there's, there's quite normal and healthy emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. So it's always an end end. It's not, and this is one for me, one of the dangers talking about personality, uh, borderline personality disorder, because it's again, a static way of looking at people. Yeah. And it's so difficult once you learn what are the ingredients of a borderline personality disorder and someone comes in and is uh, announced as being a patient suffering from borderline then not to see what you have learned in this patient um so sometimes i think you, you should wipe out whatever is in your head every time you see someone 
and start from scratch and see what happens. Yeah. But it's so difficult, Frederick, to yeah. wipe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's really a realistic aim or realistic goals. So I think these are the basic um, ideas in her, in the, in the practice. Uh, she stresses um, the uh, connection with the, with the clients very much. Yeah. Uh, there's a skill training, and then it's skill training about what to do with emotion regulation, interpersonal skill training, um, and, and some other skills. So there's really, um, uh, a teaching point of view. I, we will teach you how to deal with this and this. Um, and there's also um, uh, the idea of uh, being available. And this is something I think we can learn about. We can learn a lot from Marsha Linehan uh, because she really went quite a long way in connecting and being available for clients. Um, almost day and night. So she says you need a team to handle this. Yeah. You can't do this on, on your own. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of never let down, whatever happens, whatever difficulties clients um, may have or may show, never let down. Yeah. Be there. Hang in is one of the sentences from one of her books. Hanging there. Yeah. Uh, don't you break the contact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes when we're talking about self-harm, for instance, um, sometimes I hear people say, well, I will treat you if you stop harm yourself. And of course, that's almost impossible if yeah. self-harm is a way of getting grip on the world, as we talked earlier. Yeah. Um, so I think there you, as a uh, someone who's trying to giving help or breaking the contact, you're limiting the ways of uh, of being able to be in contact with his with his clients. Yeah? This does not mean that you should tolerate whatever. Mm -hmm. Of course, it, you have to talk about what are we going to do with this self harm of yours? How are we going to handle the suicidal ideas? Of course, you have to talk about that but not in a um, yes or no manner. And that's hang in there, keep, keep the contact alive. And you do by yourself um, hold contact with those clients almost day and night, or do you work in a team? How do you do that in practice? It, it's not always that. Um... No, uh, true, mm -hmm. true. So what, what I try to do is con to create a team around uh, the clients and this includes professionals yeah at night you can't phone me let's be clear about that yeah uh, but my clients know where they can call yeah. at night and where will where there certainly will be people who will be able to listen yeah so there's a professional network yeah but we also look for a a, a, a network in the System the natural, the natural system of the client. Yeah. So we will bring in people uh, who are willing to help. Yeah. We're asking them, is it okay if the client is calling you if something goes wrong or whatever? And 
so we are creating this quite yeah some kind of network um, yeah. around the clients and when the network is quite limited or not everyone is available in his or her network is it also mm -hmm. useful to use things like the I don't know the word in English, the suicidal telephone or like in Fleming, in Belgium, Teleontal, yeah, you absolutely. give those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if maybe there's um, there one or two conditions connected with that. Um, it's not, I think in my experience, not helpful just to give those uh, phone numbers. Yeah. Uh, it has, it has to be negotiated in some way. So uh, if you give your number, how will you use it? And if you use it, how, what, what will be, uh, what do you hope will come from, come from it? So you create a context around a phone number. So that um, when they're in a difficult emotion or something, um, they will, um, the chance that they use it is much bigger if you do it that way. Yeah. Is that uh, thinking behind? Yeah. Um, well, not in uh, creating distance in the way of um, um, uh, trying not to call mm -hmm. or po postponing to call. Mm -hmm. uh, not really that, but to have ideas about if you call, what will become, what will be the the outcome of it what do we, what is your goal with yeah. yeah and if you talk about that early on yeah if things are not that difficult yeah there's a chance that if it becomes difficult and someone is calling that this phone call will be different than if you had not done that before yeah okay yeah yeah Mm, does the Bruch model follow certain steps in the therapy for these, I'm going to say, these clients instead of difficult people or borderline personality disorder? Um, you, you said a few things, but is there a certain um, order that you follow um, about emotion regulation and things like that? Um, not really. No. Um, because we're within a solution-focused framework, um, you don't have any script you follow. Yeah. There's not a protocol to follow because it's not that we are against protocols. No. Our, we just say protocols are useful for clients for which protocols are useful. Yeah. So you have to start with the clients. So also with, because I don't treat person, borderline personality disorders, of course, I talk with people who are saying, um, I want to talk with you about something and I will be interested in what would be useful to talk, to talk about. Yeah. And from there on we, we start and someone yeah. will say, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of conflict with people and we will talk about conflicts with people and yeah. what, uh, what, what he or she wants different. Yeah, which is a very solution-focused way. Yeah, I was thinking we, my first question will, will not be how come. My first question will be what would you like instead. Yeah. Um, and if someone is uh, suffering from um, having difficult relationships, I 
Mercedes means that relationships is something really wanted. So I will be interested in how this, what you want from it. How do you see that relationships? So am I treating borderline personality disorder? I don't know. I'm talking about difficulties that people are wanting to talk with yeah. me. Yeah. So there's not, there's not a strict protocol. No. But there is a strict process in my head. This means that I will try to connect with people. And we will talk about uh, what is important for the client at that moment. And then we will try to find out what he or she would like instead. So we will talk about goals. Yeah. And then we will see if we can find some kind of step stones to stand on. Yeah, so look in the current life, what is okay? Um, mm -hmm. what, what should not change? Where we can start from? And how come this is okay? And from there on, we will see and what, what could be the next step. So this yeah. process is quite, um, is quite clear in my mind. Yeah. But it's not a protocol. Yeah. It will take the time it takes. If the client um, is convincing me that um, he, is, he or she is not ready to move on in whatever step, then we'll have to talk about, about this and we will have to stay close with the client at this point. So no, there's no step, there's no clear way in my head, yeah, but there's a clear process in my head. Yeah, I understand the difference, yeah. Um, the next question, um, actually you gave, gave already a few answers on this, um, but I'm just curious, so I'm still going to ask it. How does the basic attitude look like for a solution-focused therapist? You know what I mean? I think I do. Yeah. If I don't. Um, I think the the basic attitude is an attitude of maybe three things for me. One, an attitude of respect. We have a conversation on an equality basis. This means, of course, you have a question and I will try to help to find, to help you to find your own uh, answers. Yeah. Of course, that's a difference. Of course there is, but we are equal in being human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are equal in having ideas. I have my ideas, you have your ideas. Mm -hmm. And we start from this uh, absolute respect. Yeah. Second uh, attitude is an attitude um, assuming competence within the clients, yeah, which is very hard to teach. Um, but it's really relying on the fact that we all have our own um, competences to do something with to use in our lives and in uh, our search for a satis satisfying life. Yeah, meaning. Uh, for meaning, yeah, and that this yeah. competence is already there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the third important attitude is an attitude of uh, to validate, to remind, help to remind people that they have competence 
And even if they are feeling very help, helpless, hopeless, uh, lost, uh, or whatever, that they are still people who have the possibilities to find uh, ways out of these difficulties. And for me, this is the basic attitude in a solution-focused uh, approach. That's a really nice one. Solution-focused therapist works with goals. Are there certain kind of goals that he often use with his clients? I was well, thinking like the suicidal tendencies, the automutilation, the extreme emotions. Um, are, are these goals for you sometimes? Or no, not for you, for the client actually often? Um, well, you, you're giving a quite a bit of my answer already oh yeah but we are talking about the goals of the clients yeah um so i will be interested in the goals of the clients what do they want yeah what do, what would they like to see other other in another way what would like they like to change yeah and of course um there has to be some kind of security in the treatments. Yep. So this means that we have to talk about if someone is suicidal, we have to talk about how will we handle this? And how can we find some security to do what we are doing here without um, stimulating the ideas of uh, quitting life or, or being suicidal. Um, same with um, self-harm so we, we will talk about this and we we will try to see in the discussion in the conversation about these issues what will mm -hmm. be the of the clients so i will ask them so what do you want to do with the suicidal ideas uh, what do you want me to do with you to do with your suicidal ideas so this will become um, integrated in uh, how do you see your life within six months, for example. Mm -hmm. you, you still will be suicidal then. And if you're not, what will be different? And how will I know? Yeah. Yeah. So the goals are basically always the goals of the clients. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you have to bring into the conversations some ideas about security, about feeling safe, me feeling safe as a counselor, the client feeling safe about himself and the people around the client feeling safe about what will happen to the clients. Yeah. Okay. A tool that you speak about in your course is alertness. Um, you divide the alertness in what and how. Can you explain what you mean with this tool? Yeah, it's a tool that I stole from uh, Marshall Linham. Yeah. Um, um, and th this idea of alertness um, comes from the opposite idea that when emotions are very strong, they tend to take over action. So you will behave in a very emotional driven way. Yeah, this medium, I can feel very, very angry and I will behave from this angry part of me and it will be hard and strong and with strong words yeah the ideas of alertness is um, to create a context where 
uh, you can um, create a little distance be between you and what is happening with you. Yeah? So you will, in the example of angry, of being angry, you will try to um, observe what is happening with you before the bad words are coming out. What are the first feelings? What do you feel in your body? Yeah? So this observation and trying to, um, in a way you could, you, you could say you try to gain time. Mm -hmm. Not this impulsive, immediate reaction, but um, some small little time to think it over, even without any thoughts, but to create some distance between what is coming and what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is the, the alertness to where you, where you observe and then they promote some, Marsha is promoting some mindfulness techniques yep. um, um, where you, um, when you try to um, describe for yourself what you're feeling, you know, to give words to this very uh, nonverbal uh, experiences and signals your, your body is giving you. And then I, for instance, would ask, if you describe this angriness in you, when you feel very angry, where in your body do you feel that? And how does it feel? You know? And when the angry, angriness is going away, how does that feel in your body? So we will try to find words to describe this very nonverbal experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and in a, in another aspect of this alertness is what she calls uh, participate. And what she means by that, that's um, the how of the participate is to look for what is effective, what is working for you, which is a very solution focused idea. Try to look for what is helping you already and try to do more of that. That's very so interesting. This way, it's a, it's a useful tool. Yeah? Yeah. For me, as a solution focused, in a solution focused mindset, you have to use this tool and make it um, not a teaching instrument, but a connecting instrument. And to have um, use this tool in a conversation with your client. And if you talk about the descriptions, yeah, about what, how would you describe what you are feeling? Then you will stick with the descriptions. You won't replace them, but will, you will work with what, a, what your clients are really feeling and, and, and doing. So it's, you can use this tool in a very solution-focused way yeah, to make it most useful for every client again. Yeah. And not use it as, as a protocol to run through with every client you see. Very interesting. It, yeah, maybe you can put the light on, I think. <laughs> That's much better. And I will close. All right. Here I am again. Perfect. <laughs> this, what you, what you just explained is an emotion regulation model actually already because my next question is um, another tool from the Bruce model is emotion regulation um, so are there other emotion ways of um, regulating emotions of these clients 
Um, well, maybe when we talk about emotion regulation, um, we should also talk about windows of tolerance, which has yeah. been a very useful way of looking how emotions uh, impact the way we behave. You know, um, there's a window of tolerance where we are uh, at our best in an emotional way, where emotions are really helpful uh, in, de in deciding, where emotions are really helpful in choosing the right behavior. It's only when emotions are too high or, mm -hmm. too, low, or too low also. Um, and too low means that you not, you're not really responding emotionally to situations which normally would um, ask for an emotional reaction. Um, it's when it's too high and too low that you're not um, able to react in a proper way. Yeah. So windows of tolerance um, is, an, for me, a very helpful idea to talk about with clients also. Maybe it's, uh, um, maybe it's interesting to explain to, some list, to the listeners what um, the window of tolerance is. Um, well, it's, what I, I, I just mentioned is this um, window. It is, um, how can I call it? Is it the boundaries? Yeah. Um, which define um, the ways in which emotions are um, helpful, mm -hmm. um, helpful in um, making decisions, helping in um, taking good actions. Um, and within these boundaries, uh, we have a certain flexibility. So emotions can come, come up, can go down, but we, we manage these kinds of fluctuation in emotions. Yeah? Once you go above or below the boundaries, you uh, lose this flexibility. Yeah? Um, if you're too, above the, too high, yeah, then you're in a state of uh, constant high per arousal. So your arousal is too high. And that's what, for instance, when you when we are in panic, when we are in panic, we have this overwhelming emotional experience, which um, enables us to make good decisions, which enables us to think straight, which enables us to think, what, what, what should I do? What should I do? It, it's too high. When you're too low, there's a lack of energy to think about possibilities. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can uh, see with uh, people who are substance abusers, who uses a lot of drugs, for instance, there is an, uh, a lack of emotional reactability. And even if... Is it the same like hypoarousal? Yeah, that's the same. Yeah. That's the hypoarousal then. Yeah. Um, so this idea of windows of tolerance um, also states that uh, it's not the idea of getting rid of emotions. Yeah? Emotions are a normal part of everyday life, yeah? but it's getting the emotions into these boundaries where they are flexible, helping um, um, guides in our everyday life. Yeah. 
Um, so we will talk about, uh, in a solution-focused conversation, we will talk about uh, all these moments where the emotions were within the limits, within the boundaries of a helping fluctuation in emotions. Yeah? And not that much about when they were too high or too low, but here it is mostly too high. And we will try to see what can we do to make uh, you stay within those limits. What are the first signs in your body? And then we come with uh, uh, into this previous uh, tool of alertness. Yeah. Um, and we also will be interested in this sequence of emotions and actions. How does it work for you? What is the first sign? Yeah, and what happens then? And as if your ideas on the sequence of how this behavior builds one step on another, um, and you can divide this in different steps, then you have more possibilities to intervene at an earlier stage. Yeah? Because once your emotion is sky high, the emotion is sky high then the fire has to go out and you just have to wait for the fire to go out. Yeah. So the sooner you can intervene in this sequence, yeah, yeah. the better it is. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, we all have these experiences and this is not uh, only for those difficult people, question mark. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Maybe it's a little bit of a strange question when I read it now. Um, what kind of emotions do you often see by these clients? Um, you know, the answer, Frederick, we see all kinds of emotions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Very normal human beings. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All kinds of emotions. But, but, you, but I do see a bit more of anger, sadness, um, confusion um, by these clients um, when I guide them then if I see other sort of clients um, with other um, difficulties of course these emotions you you are referring to yeah. um, are these um, are the loudest emotions yeah yeah the emotions with uh, with character angry uh, Shyness is, is also an emotion, but that's lots more silent. It's not that obvious. You have to look for it. You don't see yeah. it. So, um, I think we, the, we the, all emotions uh, are known by uh, all these people, but I think there's a difference in intensity. Yeah. Yeah. And the intensity of being angry, the intensity of being sad, the intensity of being um, helpless, the intensity of being lost or feeling lost, this intensity can be um, bigger, yeah. more intense. Yeah? Yeah. And this window of tolerance helps to, to, um, to, to have a grip on, to, to see how this works, so this hyper emotionality yeah yeah which um, which influences these people very much yeah yeah 
it's actually a bit of like a guideline maybe for those clients also. If you talk Sorry. about, it's a bit like a guideline uh, for those people also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when I try to explain this idea of windows of tolerance, clients say, yeah, exact, this is exactly what is happening to me. Yeah, so it's, I'm between the boundaries and one at a certain moment, I'm completely off limits and I'm sky high. This is what's happening. So it's some kind of psychoeducation that becomes helpful. Yeah. How do you deal with a person in crisis? Well, I think connecting to the windows of tolerance, crisis, you could define crisis as people who are out of their window yeah where um where they can't rely on um their tools they normally can't rely on to solve problems yeah a crisis is mostly a situation where they can't see a, a solution they can't see a way out if they could see there would not be a crisis yeah, yeah? um so I think we have to do the same with all kinds of behavior that's outside the window of emotional tolerance. And that's to get them back into the window and the boundaries where they can rely again on what they know, what they feel, what they've done before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so um, aiming for stabilization is the first um, therapeutical task to, to deal with. Yeah, to get people back on their feet. Yeah, to get them back in their mindset of possibilities, because crisis is mindset of uh, impossibilities. Yeah. Um, and whatever helps is good. Cup of coffee, going for a walk, uh, calling someone, um, looking for reassurance in some way or another. Um, just sitting alongside whatever, everything what helps to, to get some new stability and to get, the, to get them again in contact with their own possibilities. Yeah. What is the role of hope? I would say that is the role in therapy. Um, I think Without hope, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not so good in these one-liners. <laughs> all these one-liners are just one-line shorts. It's, uh, um, but I would say without hope, there is no possibility of change. And you should not quote me on that. Um, but hope is what make, makes us move on. Um, I think we all live our day, day by day, or live our life day by day, uh, in the unconscious uh, presence of hope. Yeah. It's not always clear in our mind. It's when we lose hope that we are very conscious uh, of that. And I think a lot of our clients come to see us uh, without hope or with little hope. So introducing mm -hmm. and reestablishing hope 
is maybe the first thing to do. Yeah, because it's one of the biggest powers in a person, I believe. Yeah, it is, it is, it is. Yeah. And we know um, of the outcome research of psychotherapy that um, HOPE stands for 15 to 20% of the outcome variance. It's the sole idea of introducing HOPE in some way helps us for 15 or 20% to get better. Yeah. So if we don't do that, we lose almost 21 fifth of the outcome. Yeah. So I think we should use a language which incorporates hope. Yeah. And I think as a solution focused therapist, we know how to use this kind of language where we almost make a hopeful future um, visible in our daily practice. When we talk about futures that clients want, even if they say, but it, it is not possible for me because of that, of that, we still will uh, try to create um, reachable goals, how, however small they can be, but reachable goals because something that is ahead of you and you can see maybe that's that's something that's possible for me introduces hope and this this is hope that's really the engine the engine of the fuel of of change beautiful set what do you say to a person who harms him or herself um, i'm actually curious if you ask here also the question like when a person drinks alcohol and um, we often ask in what way does the alcohol in this here we can um, ask the question in what way does the self-harm helps you can you ask this that question to a person who harms him or herself and or is it dangerous actually i absolutely ask this question to this person yes. of course because i think that's the only way I can really respect the way people are trying to make the best out of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not really interested in um, the, well, no, I will, I will, I know. I think I'm interested in all the details of the self-harm. And I will, um, I will ask, absolutely I will ask, how is this helpful for you? What is the result? How, what do you think is helpful? What are your ideas? What do you make of, of, of this? Yeah. Could you ever imagine that you should do, would do this in your future life? I will ask them, um, and then I will ask them also questions about um, uh, about the habit of the self-harm. We, we haven't talked about this other idea of the Bruch model, and this is how a personality, also what we call a borderline personality, is you, you could look at, at this as a bunch of habits a bunch of ways of doing and seeing things in life. And uh, as a Bulgarian uh, psychiatrist once told, 
uh, once told when he was talking, when we were discussing about habits, habits he, said, he said, well, you do something for the first time and then you continue doing that and it becomes a habit. Um, and with self-harm, I think that's really true. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it is interesting to talk with people about in a very uh, respectful way, of course, but to ask them, um, um, how did this start? How, where came, came this idea from? Yeah. And what do you use? What instrument do you use? Do you always use the same instrument? Or do you use different instruments? Where do you harm yourself? At home? Outside the home? Where on your body do you harm yourself? Because in discussing this in a very again, in a very respectful way, you are talking about all the different aspects of this habit that has become the self-harm. And in trying to differentiate um, these different aspects, it's just another way of getting new information into the conversation with the idea that new information may lead to new choices. And new choices may lead to something different than this self-harm. Yeah. yeah. Are there things you would like to add to this topic that I didn't uh, mention? Oh, we could on, go on for hours, Frederick. It's, uh, <laughs> I find the, the, the questions you ask so um, um, helpful for me to refresh my own ideas. Yeah. Um, and to rethink um, what I was thinking before. Yeah. So I hope when I will um, have training on difficult people question mark this year, uh, I will tell something slightly different from last year. <laughs> this whole conversation will surely help me with with that. Um, but maybe I would. What I would like to add is that. Um, there is not such a thing as difficult people. Yeah. And I think um, one thing these people deserves from us as counselor is that we look at them at co as competent people who are trying very hard. Yeah. Yeah. From, yeah. and this is, this is true, um, most of these people um, lacked a very stable start in life. So they are making the best out of it without much of step stones to stand on. Yeah. And they deserve to be um, looked at, to be talked to as competent, competent people. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing difficult about that. Yeah. Um, I think if difficulties are arising, they are arising from the side of the counselor. Yeah. Um, and, of and this is not me that, that we should tolerate everything. And that, of course not. But is not, I only say that difficulty is not something in a person. Difficulty is something in a relationship. And if no one would be on this side to tell the other side that he was difficult, there would be no difficulty. It's always something in the relation. Yeah. And this is a, 
this is very hopeful. This means because it's always in the relation, it means that me as a counselor, I can do something in this relation mm -hmm. that maybe will change something on the other side of the, of the relation, which will influence me at this side of the, of the relation. So this is very hopeful mm -hmm. because yes, we can do something. I don't think what we should not try to change people. I don't think that's our job, but we can do something. And what we can do is happening in this relationship. Yeah. So that was really something I had to ask. <laughs> that's a nice one. Are there any books that you could recommend about this, this topic? Yeah, I looked them up. Nice. Uh, and um, I have some book. I have the book of Alistair MacDonald. Yes. Uh, he, it's from 2011 already. Yeah. It's about a general book about solution-focused therapy, but very, with um, a very nice uh, chapter on these kinds of difficult uh, relationships, therapeutic relationships. Yeah. There's also... Uh, a book of Bill O'Hanlon and uh, Rowan, I forgot his first name, um, which is called Solution-Oriented Therapy for Chronic and Severe Mental Illnesses, yeah, which is um, um, very helpful. It's 20, 20 years of, of age, this book, so yes. maybe you and I should write a new one on, on this topic. That's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's also an, uh, um, an article by Helene De Lucci and Ferdinand Wolf. Yes. Um, talking about some useful working assumptions with clients and colleagues. Build more effective helping relationships. And it's, it's uh, um, a general, general ideas about connectiveness in solution-focused therapy. But it's very useful um, in the context of uh, people who've, who experiences these difficult connections with uh, with the world okay and in dutch uh, there's a um, uh, an article in directive therapy uh, from four years ago and the title is um, beter weeters in english those who knows those who know best best yeah and um, it's uh, an article about um uh, this research on how uh, people experience the therapeutic relationship. It's from Banning, from Frederick Banning, and uh, uh, with a colleague, Dan Han, where she, she's written a lot of uh, articles with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where can people, oh, unless there is another book, something you want to add? No, no that's no. all. No, okay. Where can people find you online? If they want to search a therapist, um, I don't know, want, <laughs> want to know who you are. Best way is uh, um, uh, through the website of uh, Korzybski. Yes. Korzybski.be. Um, and if you uh, send an email to heert at Korzybski.be, then uh, you come into my Korzybski mailbox. I want to thank you for all your information that you shared with us and your time. It is, for me, it is very useful and I hope it's useful for a lot of other people who hear this. Thanks a lot, Geert. Thank you, Frederick. Thank you.